Just being like a brown girl going skiing, I would always feel as though when I got to the hill that I wasn't only representing, I, like I was representing so many identities. Like I felt like when I got there, I had to be really good and I had to shred really hard because I was representing Indian people. I was representing Indian women and then I was representing women in general. And it was just so many identities to try to represent that I could never just be Indra. I, I, I never felt like I was just arriving as myself because I felt like I had to show up for all of my different communities. I am joined by the incredibly driven and talented Indra. A listener actually sent me over her profile a while back and I found her page and I loved it. She's also a BC gal, so love to represent. Um, she's the founder of Inclusivity, an organization that provides avalanche safety training to minorities in coastal BC, Canada. She's an icon in the local snow sports world where she consistently advocates for inclusion and diversity in the field. Um, I am so excited to dive in into your journey. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, I appreciate you and I appreciate your time. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. What a cool intro. Um, I've never been called an icon before. Thank you. You are, you are absolute, absolute legend. Um, so usually with my questions, I, before we dive into everything that you're doing today, I want to know a little bit more about kind of your childhood and what Indra was like, um, you know, before going into like high school and uni days, what did you kind of envisioned your future, like path and career to be back in the day? Mm, that's a cool question that I haven't really thought about. Um, I feel like as a kid, I didn't have like a ton of creativity about where I saw my future going. Okay. And it's so interesting because I, there's a lot of words that people would use to define me now that I would have never used to define myself as a child. Like when people describe me as driven or like a leader, those are things I can get behind now. But as a child, I very much felt as though I was a follower and I was just trying really hard to fit in. Um, and so that's kind of what I feel like when I reflect on my childhood, that's kind of what it feels like it was defined by was this just like massive desire to fit in. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of Vancouver. And so uh, I grew up in, I mean, my parents, my family lived in Surrey, which is a very Indian community, but mm -hmm. my schooling and all my sports were done through North Delta. And so my parents did everything through North Delta, which was, which was very white at the time. And I did French immersion and I played all of these team sports. I played softball, ringette, hockey, volleyball, everything and anything. And so I was often like really one of maybe two Indian girls in the spaces mm -hmm. that I was in, or at least within my friend groups. Um, and so, yeah, I would have characterized like my entire childhood, early adolescence as just this very human it's yeah it's all categorized by this very human desire to fit in and I don't know mm -hmm. if I was much of an individual until I left uh until I left North Delta until I left the suburbs oh my gosh okay so I actually grew up in Surrey as well um for until I was like in grade seven we moved to the North Shore so then I went to school into West Van that was a really big change for me but I was the exact same because I think now people would describe me like, oh, my God, Santa, you're so driven. You're like in more a moral leadership role. Really, back in the day, I was just like trying to follow everyone and try to be cool. And like I was really in the shadow of like my sister. I would try to like she was always super successful and I always really looked up to her. Um, but I was definitely like a follower as well. So it's interesting that you say that. Um, yeah. And where did you kind of find that time where you found yourself becoming like an individual? 
as you said? Um, I, after high school, I went to UBC to do my undergrad mm-hmm. and I went right after high school. And mm-hmm. I was one of, I think, two people from my graduating class that went to UBC. And so when I went there, I didn't know anybody. Like I wasn't, I didn't keep in contact with the other girl from my school who went, I very much went and I lived on campus and I didn't know anybody. And it was really just this time for me to figure out who I wanted to be and, and where I wanted to go. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, going to UBC was the first time where I felt like I had a blank slate and it was totally my decision as to what I was doing. Because when I was a kid growing up, I did the sports that my parents put me in and I made friends with the people who are still my friends today. But a lot of the decisions or the spaces that I ended up in were because my parents put me there. Mm-hmm. which I'm super grateful for. They, they wanted the best for me and, and they wanted me to grow up a really well-rounded person. And I did. And I basically took everything that I learned from those years and just decided that I could go and employ leadership on my own terms and decide what that looked like for me in university. And so, yeah, university for me was this super transformational period that was, you know, academics were important to me and my degree was important, but in the same breath, the most important things that I took from university were actually the leadership experiences that I was a part of. Yeah. Amazing. What were some of those leadership experiences? Yeah. Um, so UBC has clubs for literally anything like clubs and organizations. And so over my five years there, I was a part of, um, one organization called the calendar, which is basically the campus's biggest party creating organization. Mm -hmm. So plan just some of the biggest parties on campus Um, And that was super cool because, yeah, I got to plan events. I got to go to parties and it was all about at the end of the day, just like creating spaces for literally anybody to show up and have a good time. Um, So I did that for four years of my degree, three or four years. And then I also was a part of UBC Recreation and Intramurals, which, again, was like fully based in planning events Mm -hmm. and uh, intramural activities for the student body. Um, And in both the calendar and UBC rec, I ended up taking on some pretty high leadership jobs where I was overseeing like the larger team. So for the calendar, the team was 60 students, all volunteers. And then for UBC rec, it's about 125 student volunteers. Um, And so, yeah, I I just really loved being in a place where I could empower the students who are part of the organization to go and create something bigger than themselves and to go and create spaces where people wanted to show up, wanted to have a good time, felt welcome. And I feel like I've actually never put those pieces fully together until right now, where like a lot of the work I do ends up, the the work that I love doing ends up being work where I can create spaces for people to just arrive and feel um, Mm -hmm. as though they belong immediately. And maybe that comes from, and not maybe that comes from, that definitely comes from an early childhood of just wanting to fit in and not knowing what belonging even felt like. Yeah. Yeah. So when you had graduated, did you know what you exactly what you wanted to do? You know what you loved, you know, that you love creating those spaces, but was it easy to kind of find a specific like career path that led to that? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think leaving university, I knew that I wanted to go and work in the outdoor industry because I'm really passionate about, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion within the outdoor community, just Mm -hmm. the lack of representation, the lack of diverse storytelling, um, the lack of opportunity presented to to traditionally marginalized folks, like the barriers are just paramount. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to see that change happen within the industry. I just didn't really know my how. And so um, I went and I started working in the industry at like an entry level customer service level to really try to make that change. Went through some pretty 
tumultuous times, just trying to find my footing. And, and I no longer work directly in the outdoor industry doing nine to five, but I do within my own organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think for me, like I knew leaving university, what I wanted, I knew that it, I knew that like long-term I wanted to work within outdoor. I wanted to become, be a storyteller in outdoor, create spaces and opportunities for folks. I just didn't know my how. Um, and that came mm-hmm. to me, like inclusivity came, I think two years after graduating. Cause I also graduated now almost three years ago. Um, right. so it's been a long journey for sure. Yes. And it's been yes. bumpy. It's been hard. I can imagine. Yeah. And before we get into your organization for people that don't really know, cause I, um, like, for example, I went skiing for the second time of my life last month. So the mm-hmm. snow sports world and the culture that's around there. Um, do you kind of mind, do you mind like describing what it's like? The, is there, you know, the underrepresentation of women of color, women in general, do you mind just kind of giving like a brief synopsis of what that culture is like? Yeah, for sure. Like the snow sport culture is a very privileged culture to take part in because it requires mm-hmm. not only like money to get in, but it actually also requires mm-hmm. this level of intergenerational knowledge. And so mm-hmm it's easier to get into that space when your parents were in it and your grandparents were in it. Like your grandfather built a cabin from hands in Aspen. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like that is like weirdly a common story where it's like, yeah, like it's Mm -hmm. just like people's grandparents were skiers and you have vintage photos of your grandparents skiing. And it's just like, that's kind of a bit of the culture that really maintains. And so there are so many barriers when it comes to skiing. Like it's really expensive. Not only is like the gear expensive, but also your annual lift tickets are like very pricey. Skiing one day in Whistler peak season is like $200. And so the access to it is just one thing tangibly really difficult. And then there's, there's those more like invisible barriers, like that intergenerational knowledge that I was speaking of. And then there's that representation barrier too, because white folks have been afforded this opportunity to see themselves in this space for forever, because that's what traditional snow sports media is showcasing is that like very white story. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when you're able to see yourself represented in a space, of course, you're never going to question whether or not you belong there. Um, And that representation really lacks for, for folks of color. And there's a lot of storyline that lack around disabilities and queer folks. And so there's not necessarily these spaces yet for all these traditional marginalized groups. And so what that ends up leading to is like for myself, I'll speak for myself, um, just being like a brown girl going skiing. um, I would always feel as though when I got to the hill that I wasn't only representing like I was representing so many identities. Like I felt like when I got Mm -hmm. there, I had to be really good and I had to shred really hard because I was representing Indian people. I was representing Indian women. And then I was representing women in general. And it was just so many identities to try to represent that I could never just be Indra. I, I, I Mm -hmm. never felt like I was just arriving as myself because I felt like I had to show up for all of my different communities. Um, And so that even itself is like a huge psychological barrier as well. Like that psychological safety Mm -hmm. is also a massive barrier that I feel like, um, we're talking about a lot more now, but I think for a while that one wasn't recognized, um, as, as easily as a barrier. Yes. Yes. And how did that feel like having that kind of pressure affect you or weight on your shoulders, having to represent South Asian women, women in general, just all of that 
Yeah. How did that affect you? And how did that just take a toll on your, you know, like personal mental health? I mean, it just really truly made me never feel like I was good enough because Mm -hmm. I just, I never felt like I could exist authentically as myself. And I felt like if I was having a bad day, I'd have to have excuses. Um, yeah, it just, it, 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 there was just this like added pressure of never feeling like I could show up and arrive as myself. And that's like a super heavy burden to carry. Um, yeah, I think just psychologically, it really drained on me. And in turn, like, I never think, I don't think I could ever show up confidently because I was always so scared and it really just perpetuated this like inadequacy narrative that unfortunately I've had to try really hard to get rid of in my mind. Mm -hmm. So how did that, how did you kind of help that? Is it through your organization or how do you feel today in terms of, you know, your confidence there? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a super confident skier these days for sure, Mm -hmm. but I do notice like a difference in my energy, in my mentality, in my just like sheer presence when I'm on the hill um, with a group of friends who don't look like me. Like if I, I, I still do have like a, a ton of white friends, um, and I love them to death and they're my best buddies in this entire world for sure. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't think we'll, we'll ever be able to maybe achieve like that total psychological safety that I get when I'm with, um, an inclusivity group through my organization. Um, so yeah, my organization is called inclusivity and it is really all about, creating opportunities for traditionally marginalized folks. And particularly we've been focusing on women and gender expansive folks of color. Um, And I just, I feel so much lighter when I'm with those groups because it never feels like it's about the objective. Like I feel like everybody all the time is just really freaking happy to be there, really Mm -hmm. happy to be in the presence of other people that understand their story. There's, you don't need to, you know, let out, you know, your entire background story, just so that people understand you. Like there's already that base level of understanding of the barriers that you've had to surpass to get there. And Mm -hmm. so as much as I love my friends and I love skiing with them and I never want them to think that I don't because they've made me like the skier that I am today. Um, I do just feel a difference in my energy, my connectedness with like the land and with, um, with nature when I'm with groups through inclusivity, because there's none of this like mentality around, like we have to get this amount of runs in, or we have to summit Mm -hmm. this thing on our tour. Like, it's really just about being there and it's about being present. Um, and I unfortunately think that kind of lacks in some of the other spaces that I'm in. Uh, and so that's kind of sometimes where I still have a hard time with other friends is I'm not driven necessarily by that big objective. Um, if we get to it, that's awesome but Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be disappointed if we don't, if it's at the stake of someone else's comfort, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. No, it does. So how did you kind of first launch it? I think it was for, you know, an AST one course and how did that Mm -hmm. kind of come into fruition? How did you get sponsors or partners for that one? Yeah. Last. So yeah, the the first one we ever did was in January of 2021. And that one was literally just like an idea that I had before at like 7am one morning, cause I had applied to get into a mountain mentorship program or wanted to apply to get in, but I didn't have my avalanche safety training. Um, and ultimately at the end of the day, that's why I didn't get into the program was cause I didn't have that training. And for me, the reason that I was putting off getting my training was like a finances. Like I was literally just like, when will I have time? Like the, mm-hmm. the finances on my paycheck to pay for this, 
but also the um, psychological safety barriers were like big getting me. Like I was like, I don't want to sign up for this because I just feel like I'm going to show up and be nervous. Like I just, I, I, I envisioned myself in a space of like a bunch of white men and then like maybe two white women trying to do this. And I was like, mm, that doesn't feel good. Like that doesn't, that doesn't feel safe to me. And like psychological mm-hmm. safety is so important when you're going into spaces that concern physical safety. Yes. Um, and so I texted somebody who was the president of that mentorship program that I didn't get into. And I asked them if, if they knew of any programs that existed that sponsored BIPOC folks in, in getting scholarships. Um, and they were like, no, like I actually haven't heard of anything that does that. And I was like, okay, great. I guess I'm going to go and create it on my own. Um, cause that's just how my brain functions. Um, <laughs> and so I texted a friend who, um, is a Burton ambassador and has a lot of connections within the sea to sky. And I just, I actually sent her a video, like expressing my idea. And she was like, I love this idea. I can set up a call with Burton and get them on the phone at like three today. And literally wow. like I had that idea at like seven in the morning. And then by like three 30, the idea was approved by Burton and they just wanted a pitch deck and they wanted to know how much money they'd have to pay. And we worked with Burton for that one. We worked with Evo who did all of our gear rentals and they still do all of our gear rentals. They are literally the best. We worked with who else did we work with? Uh, Vale gave us the day passes for the day. So Epic promise helped us out with that one. So yeah, we got, we got literally everything covered. Um, we worked with a guide who subsidized the prices per participant so that Burton wasn't going to have to pay like full prices as well. And so that first one, we worked really heavily with Burton. Um, and then now uh, we work I, we work with Arcterix, who covers mm-hmm. all of our programs through grants. Um, and then we work with Altus Mountain Guides, who gives us discounts. Um, and, then, and then our grants kind of cover the rest. So we have a super great relationship with a bunch of different um, organizations and a bunch of different companies. Um, And then, uh, yeah. And then Evo is just like through and through the best in terms of just no questions asked offering gear rentals whenever we have programs. That's amazing. That happened so quickly. Did you have any help or did you kind of just figure it out on your own? Um, it was the first one. I feel like it was kind of like a, let's freaking do this and pray for the best. And like, don't ask for permission with anybody beg for forgiveness. If it comes up, like it was really, we went really rogue. Um, but I did have a lot of help. Like my buddy, who's the Burton ambassador, Murray, she was a big hand in all of it. My friend, Maya, who's the founder of indigenous women outdoors helped get some participants who were a part of her programs that needed, um, avalanche safety training. Um, uh, so yeah, I, uh, for those two, my buddies came in real strong to kind of just like help support this idea that I had. And like, luckily, I don't know, it felt like it just kind of set some framework and set me up for success in terms of planning it this past year. And what's been awesome this year is I've been, I've been facilitating in them and working with the same guide all throughout. My friend, Abby is a guide with uh, Altus Mountain Guides. Mm-hmm. Um, and she guides all of our, has been guiding all of our programs this year, which has been really cool because then everybody who comes through the programs has the same guide, has the same information. And then we just kind of throw everybody in a Facebook group once they've gone through our programs and, and hope that maybe if they want to, they can connect and knowing that they've all had the same guide is also really nice for them all to just kind of know that they've had the same baseline of knowledge. Yeah. That's amazing. So what about now you said it's been like a, you know, bumpy ride. What are some of your current challenges? I know initially there's probably a lot of like a learning curve and you know, educating maybe certain companies. Um, it seemed like not, there wasn't too many where you didn't need to educate, but what about now? What are, what are some of the challenges that you face? Truly? Like, I just think sometimes like 
time and energy is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Like I work a nine to five job and then have four side jobs that help bring in money. Yeah. I like inclusivity being one of those side jobs, but like, uh, yeah, I think for me, one of my biggest barriers is just time and, and, uh, and energy is probably it. Um, yeah, we did five programs this year, which is really awesome. Like we did one last year and then five this year and obviously hope to like up it next year, but I just kind of need to find a cadence that works. Um, and also just kind of, I want to find someone to bring on board and help Mm me. Um, and then in the same breath, I find it really hard to let go of this like child brain baby that that I've created. Yeah. So, so that's kind of hard to. Yeah. Yeah. How are, so what is your nine to five? Is it in a similar space and how, like, I just try and understand how you're managing all this time, trying to ski, have time for yourself as well. That's crazy. It's a really great question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I work in the food and beverage industry as a diversity, equity and inclusion specialist. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's- so I do a nine to five doing that. Um, and I don't know how I have time to do other things. I think, unfortunately, mm-hmm. like I'm, I, I, I wish inclusivity could have done more this year. I really mm-hmm. do. Um, mm-hmm. I think ultimately it just kind of came down to yeah, my own energy levels, especially because I really like to be there when we do the avalanche safety training courses. Like I don't like to just, I don't want to just send a group off with a guide. Um, I really like to be there to facilitate space and to facilitate a couple of activities. Um, and just to be like that connection back to the organization for people. So, yeah, I think um, balancing is something I have not mastered yet, Uh, but I think one of the big reasons that we don't really do summer programming is just because I do use that time to kind of recharge and get my ducks in the row for, Mm -hmm. for the next season. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said that your nine to fives in the food industry. Um, I was just speaking to, I have a coffee shop, my favorite coffee shop in the world. This is a little bit offside, but it's called O Caroline yeah. and it's in Mount Pleasant and it's owned. Um, and or the chef is, um, an Asian woman. And we talk often about how the food industry women are so um, underrepresented. So yeah. I'm trying to like, how does you, how do you apply some of those strategies that you learn in the food industry to some of your other passion projects that you're doing? Honestly, I feel like it actually is more the other way around. Like I think that I end up taking a lot of what I learn through inclusivity and through conversations Mm -hmm. that I learn in that realm of life and bring them into, into food industry. Cause I mean, while we think snow sports are really behind, so is the food industry. Like I always think that it's so interesting when we think about this, the stereotype of like women working in the like, like women's homes are in the kitchen. Yeah. And it's like, when it's like a domestic thing, it's like the women belong in the kitchen making my fucking breakfast. Sorry yeah. for swearing. <laughs> um, and then when you move it to a professional setting, it's like, no, no women in the kitchen. This is a hyper masculine. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's like when it's like yeah. paid for, like what, like mm-hmm. when, when you can profit and it's like, a job, it's a man's space, but when it's like mm-hmm. domestic and for the family, it's a women's space. Like it's actually so messed up. Um, so. It is. It is. And it's not just like, it's like a step-by-step thing. You can't just like, let's just hire a bunch of women or people, women of yes. color into the kitchen. Like you need to have that culture and that education for it to be kind yeah. of accepted. Wow. Is there That's one of the biggest things we talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, is there, when you're educating certain people, maybe it's like white men, do you ever get like frustrated having to always, you know, kind of educate and say it over and over? Because I know um, in some of my personal life, if I'm 
like I've, I get frustrated because it's just not seen. My point doesn't just like get across. So how do you feel when you're trying to just, yeah, trying to educate, but not try to, you know, get too angry about it? I think, um, interestingly enough, like in the professional space, something that I, that makes it a bit easier for me is my, my job title is actually diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so having that almost feels like this weird thing where I get to say these things and people just kind of have to listen to me, which I'm not Mm. mad about. Like (laughs) I've been in positions where like, I haven't had the title and I've, and I've tried to bring up similar concerns in in different spaces. And then I'm just known as like the super like PC, like party pooper, whatever. But Mm. then you get the job title and it's kind of your license to, to go forth. With that being said, I have been in situations where I have been uh, told that I've made people uncomfortable by confronting some of their very obvious biases. And that's where it gets difficult for me because I'm like, ah, Mm -hmm. then I don't really know what my job is. Like, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like my job, my job is uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. My job is to make people think about what they're saying, what they're creating, what they're doing. Um, so I definitely have to strike a balance and it's, and it's a constant learning process for me. And, and the emotionally exhausting part for me is even if somebody has said something harmful, they've done something harmful, they've hurt me, they've hurt somebody that I care about. Um, they've hurt people within our organization. I have to be so cognizant to meet them where they're at, because if I just come at them with like jargon and higher meaning and higher sociological concepts, like Mm -hmm. it's not going to translate. I'm not going to get them on board. And so a lot of the work lies in really like getting my finger on the pulse of where they're at in their DE&I understandings and in their journey and then meeting them there and like giving them that kindness, that grace and that patience, which I am happy to do, but not to say that it, it, that it isn't like exhausting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I heard you in a different podcast. I think it was called wildly basic that you did with one of your friends. And I love that conversation. Um, you talked a lot about self-censorship. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, how I got, that's just going off of like what you had just said and how do you uh, you know, not self-censor yourself when it's, you know, it is your job and you're supposed to have these difficult conversations, but it's not always well received on the other end. Um, yeah. So I guess, how do you just kind of avoid that? And how do you decide whether that's work? If work, you have that title, but in your personal life, how do you decide when that's worth having a conversation with someone or not, or just kind of stepping away being like, this isn't worth my time. Yeah, it's hard. It requires being diligent with your boundaries, which mm-hmm. I am learning to be better at, mm-hmm. but it's tough. It, it, it ultimately comes down to whether or not you want to have a workable relationship with the person who's harmed you. Um, and so for me, it's like, if somebody that I love says something that doesn't fly, okay, I need to have this conversation and it needs to come out of, of a place of love. And I want to teach them because I want them to be a part of my life. But then in the same breath, if that person is doing it time and time again, I also have to get really clear on myself with like, okay, this relationship is requiring like more of my energy than is fair to me. And at what point do I have to draw the line and say like, Hey, I just need to take a step back because I kind of walk into this exhausted every single time. And I need this like this to be a reciprocal journey. Like I, like it's, it's really mm-hmm. hard. Um, it's really hard. And I luckily like really haven't lost a lot of friends through, through any of this, but I think it's because when I started going into this line of work, um, I got really clear with actually, you know, what happened? The pandemic made a really good 
opportunity to just focus on which friendships were worth watering and which ones weren't. And I got really intentional with where my energy was going because uh, I feel like I have less and less of it these days. Um, and so, yeah, if anything ever comes up and it doesn't feel good, I feel like with most of my friends, I have the ability to say like, hey, this doesn't, this didn't feel good. Um, but I definitely do have to hold myself accountable because there are some friendships that even today I have to go back into soon and say like, hey, this isn't making me feel good. So for me, it ultimately comes down to whether or not I want to have like workable relationships with these, with these people mm-hmm. right. and then extend a lot of grace and kindness and, and hope that they like love me enough to, to respect what I'm asking. And then if they mm-hmm. don't like, that's a good sign to just kind of let it fizzle out and, and to back mm-hmm. away. Right. Yeah. And before we get into the rapid fire questions, just maybe just like a last question. I'm wanting to know maybe the future of inclusivity. Like, where do you see it? Where do you hope to see it within the next few years? Yeah. If you do know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always adapting and it's always changing. I think I would love to get to the point where uh, we're really just like leaning into those avalanche safety training courses and we're doing like crevasse rescue. We're, I, I want us to be providing like those courses like the, like the level one AST one, and then have opportunities for people to come back and like rejoin the programs at a later basis for something a bit more advanced. So like do a couple of avalanche safety trainings, do a couple of avalanche safety training boosters, and then something like crevasse rescue. Um, so I'd love, yeah, for us to just keep running programs like this that can keep getting more people through our doors. Um, and I don't think it'll happen next year, but maybe it'll happen you know, honestly, whenever I have the energy, but I also really want to get to a point where I'm personally, um, I've taken, I've done my ops one and I can lead the avalanche safety training. I think for me, that's the next step is like, I want to be the one, um, guiding the avalanche safety training courses. Um, it's funny, like right now, I feel like I have a tumultuous relationship with the backcountry. I'm a little scared of it at the moment. So I'm like on the mend of, of healing my relationship with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of where I want to, I want to see it going and I want to continue, you know, it really did start off with having conversations with folks, um, about, about ski culture. Um, and I took a step away from those conversations because a, it was really taxing and difficult to like edit them mm-hmm. and B, um, I didn't want to feel as though I didn't want to be like socially profiting off of like other people's trauma. Like I just didn't mm-hmm. want it to become like drama porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to be able to find ways to give back to the folks who I was interviewing. And so I'm kind of on route to figuring that out. Um, okay. so there might be some new like interview tactics in the future. Uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye out for yet. those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I want to go back into that educational space. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, okay. Do you want to get into some rapid fire questions? Yeah. Sure. Okay. We'll start because we're on the, the ski train right now. What is your favorite mountain to ski on? Whistler. Whistler. Black home. Black home. Black home. Okay. Um, wh- what moment are you most proud of in your life? Oh my God. Um, probably just most in general, the first inclusivity AST one course. Amazing. Um, what is your biggest pet peeve? Oh, oh, my biggest pet peeve. I know this. <laughs> um, <laughs> my biggest pet peeve. Oh, I feel like I just told somebody about it the other day. Now I'm stressed. Can can I skip that one and maybe come back yes. if I remember? You, yes, yes. <laughs> we come back to that one. Um, okay. 
what, what was your favorite birthday that you've had? My favorite birthday that I had was actually probably, uh, the, my first COVID birthday when I did, I did like a huge picnic in the park and I normally would do, um, I used to do brewery crawls for my birthday mm. and so then fun. the first, yeah. And yeah. so then for my first COVID birthday, cause we obviously couldn't go to breweries. We all got together in a park and I got everybody to bring like a six pack or a four pack of like, however much they wanted to drink and like their favorite beverage. And then we just put everything in a cooler and it was like a smorgasbord of, of beverages. And it was really lovely. Yeah. Yes. Have you been to lower Lonsdale, like in North Vancouver? Yeah. Yeah. Have you been to the breweries all along there? They're like so They're close. So to great. Them. They're like yeah. some of like my favorite. Yeah. What is your favorite like brewery in BC? In BC? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, I would probably have to say Persephone on Ooh, the yes. coast. I love yeah. Persephone. That's a good one. It's beautiful. It's so good. Um, okay. What is one thing missing from your life right now? Oh, um, Okay. I don't mean for this to be like a really like sad thing, but like, um, I moved to Squamish in August and I think something that's missing is like, I just don't have a very deep long-term friend here. Like I do in the city. Like I don't have like a friendship that I I don't have a friend who I've known for like five to seven years in proximity and and that, that connection in proximity is missing. Right. Okay. Um, if your life was a movie, what genre would be and who would you want to play you? Ooh, um, it would probably be like, like some sort of like dark comedy. (laughs) Like it's like a weird, like coming of age, dark comedy. Um, definitely like a coming of age kind of deal. Um, and I would want that girl who's like the new Bridgerton girl to play me. She's like, I love her. Yes. I don't know her real name. Yes. Something? No, something Ash. I think it's like Simone. The Ashley. older sister, you mean, not yes. the, the younger sister. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would have you watched have you watched the recent series or the recent season? So I'm just I'm just watching it right now because I didn't actually finish season one of Bridgerton. Like I don't okay. know why. It just didn't feel like it had the depth for me. And then I yeah. saw this like scene on Instagram where they're actually going through like a very traditional Indian wedding scene. Yes. Um and then it was that moment where I was like, I need to watch this because my, like, not only was like my physical representation being put on the screen, but also mm-hmm. like my cultural, like the Galdi, like my mm-hmm. cultural traditions were being put on screen. And I was like, I need to watch this right now. <laughs> yeah. They did a really good job. I just, like, I literally just finished the season two with, um, Ashley, like the, the, the main yeah. star, um, the other day and yeah. it was so good. I, I loved the first season and I love the representation that Shonda, I think it's Shonda. Yeah, that yeah. she has in there. Um, I actually interviewed the intimacy coordinator of the first season on the podcast. It was cool. so sick. Yeah, just like learning all the behind the scenes of everything and how there's anyways, yeah, that was just really cool. So I'm a huge fan of Bridgerton and I I like that answer. She's awesome. Love She's a really that. good actress. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. Who are the three most influential people in your life? Um, uh, three most influential people. Probably, I mean. One and two would be both of my grandmothers because they were both widowed like shortly after coming to Canada and had to raise a bunch of kids in a place that they didn't know. So grandma Baines is one and my daddy is, is two. Um, and then the third most influential, did you say women or person? Just person, anyone, yeah. Oh, my mind immediately goes to women. But who is my <laughs> third most influential person? 
feel like I'm like cheaping out, but like, I think the third would have to be my mom. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm so lucky to have such strong women in my life. And I just feel like my two grandmas are like so inspiring. It's silly. And then, yeah, my mom is just like everything that I want to be. I'm a lot more like my dad and, and I'm looking for the balance that my mom brings. Um, Mm -hmm. so I would say that just like, yeah, her patience and her like willingness to just let me figure my life out, no matter how hard it is for her to watch me move through chaos and move through just like panic attacks every single day. Um, I think is something that's like really admirable and I really appreciate just like having her grounding presence in my life. Oh yeah. It does sound like you have an amazing woman in your life for sure. Yeah. I'm really lucky. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and everything. Could, do you mind letting everyone know if they're interested in, you know, getting more involved, they want to be a part of your organization or do at one of the courses, just like plug yourself. Yeah. So yeah, you can follow inclusivity on Instagram. It's I, N-C-L-U include S-K-I-V-I-T-Y <laughs> um, but it's also easier to find if you go to my personal Instagram which is Indra I-N-D-R-U-H uh, not actually how my name is spelled but that is that is my Instagram handle and then you can find inclusivity in my bio in there as well and that's amazing. yeah that's the best way to get in contact with me too amazing well thank you so much I really appreciate you thank you Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.